Hello, and welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today, we're talking piano stores, so stick around. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. We're so glad you tuned in. Did you guys like that? No. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll just keep hammering away. Oh, no? Still? Nothing? No. 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 Okay. It just gets worse each time you do a new well, one. Well, the key and to success. Away <laughs> <laughs> for a pluck. <laughs> All right. We're going to be talking piano stores. I got that out of my system. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, please leave that in. Um, we're going to be talking piano stores today, which is pretty a pretty cool concept. And Dan has interviewed quite a few people that have plucked away. No, no, no. Now you're trying no, too I'm hard. I'm just reaching. Yeah. They've really uh, had their hand in pianos and selling pianos. So um, we're really excited to share this part of the collection. I'm totally excited about today's podcast because it represents the music store owners, and those are a big part of our history. In fact, when NAM first began our oral history project, a big deal was to get that history documented. So we started with people like Henry Steinway, and we started with the folks that had Steinway dealers going way back to the 1800s. It was really important for us because that's basically our roots and our history. Starting in 1901, all of our members were piano dealers. And while that changed over the years, it's that history and that importance of our roots that uh, was a compelling element of the beginning of the oral history project. So it's really exciting to me to take a few minutes to talk about some of those stores. Uh, many of them are going to be discussed today that were the, uh, the roots of this oral history project. Uh, so I'm very excited to have it as part of our podcast today. And just remember, the voices you're going to hear today, they represent just a small segment of the piano stores and uh, their employees and owners and everything that's in the collection. So you can always jump online to the website and check out more from that collection by going to www.namnamm.org slash library. I mean, it's amazing to me how many hundreds of stores that we have interviewed over the years, and many of them in the beginning were piano stores. So I think you're absolutely right, Elizabeth. This is only really kind of scratching the surface. But what I like about this, and and hats off to you, Elizabeth, for helping us with the, uh, the pre-production of this, we really wanted to focus on the stores that have been around for a long time, who have long uh, stories. Some of them are still family-owned since the beginning. Uh, these really represent the core of that piano concept that's been around for hundreds of years. So what better place to start than with the interview you conducted with Paul Murphy of Steinert & Sons? Yeah, Steinert & Sons out in Boston began in 1860, 
and they're the oldest Steinway dealer in the United States. So it's exciting to get their perspective and their history. So let's hear from Paul. Well, I can tell you how it started with my family, and that would be probably valuable. I had um, uh, my grandfather uh, began with M. Steinert and Sons in January of 1897. And the story on his uh, hiring was that uh, Morris Steiner, which is a, who was the founder of the company, was a German immigrant, very successful in the piano industry, uh, started in 1860 in Athens, Georgia, and he moved to uh, back to New Haven, actually. I was going to say Boston, but it was really New Haven when, he, uh, when the war broke out, uh, that is the Civil War. He went across enemy lines. I always thought that he, when he was in Athens, Georgia, I had the impression that he had probably gone to Savannah and then sailed north. He didn't do that. He, uh, he actually took his family and went through battlegrounds coming north, but to, uh, you know, on horse and wagon, that sort of thing. He had a prized cello. He left it behind in, um, in Georgia. And it, after the war, in 1865, he went back to try to find it in his little shop. He was primarily a, uh, a church organist. That was his music side, but his profession was actually making um, eyeglasses. And that's what brought him to this country. Yeah, yeah, he used to grind glass. He was an optician. And he, uh, and he learned that from an uncle in, uh, in Germany. But anyway, he was a big success. He had um, uh, stores all over New England in the Northeast Quadrant. Uh, at the time that my, uh, my grandfather uh, was going to business school in Boston, uh, his own family, uh, he was one of 14. And uh, his father and mother were immigrants to, uh, actually his mother was born in this country, his father was an immigrant to this country. Um, he had, uh, uh, he had to find work outside of his family business because there wasn't enough room for him in the family business. They had a coal and ice delivery business in Stoughton, Massachusetts. So anyway, he came to Boston, took, uh, took business courses. He was a whiz at numbers. He was a numbers cruncher uh, par excellence. He was a very organized man, much more organized than any of us are today. And um, he, uh, at the age of 16, was hired by uh, Steinert. Steinert called the Bryant and Stratton Business School, asked them for, um, asked them to send over their brightest young man, and uh, Jerome Murphy showed up, and he started at $16 a week, and you know that kind of start, you know, that you've heard about, I'm sure, in several, several other interviews, um, as a bookkeeper, or as a, uh, actually, as an office clerk, if you will, and then he became the bookkeeper and. Uh, he, uh, he moved up through the company. Uh, as I said, it was a big company. Steiner had a big family. He had seven sons. How, what was the status of Steiner at that point? At that point, Steiner was a major uh, distributor and sales of pianos uh, in New England. They, uh, <clears throat> strictly at retail. Um, they did not have manufacturing facilities, of course, in Boston. They were in Boston. Uh, they had moved their base from New Haven to Boston in 1883. Uh, when Morris's son became uh, the uh, the driving force for the company, Alex Steiner, and Alec had the um, had moved the headquarters to Boston, uh, and at the at that point in 1897, they still were not manufacturing pianos. Uh, I did read a uh, an interview in the fall of 1896 or 95, it might have been, with uh, Morris Steinert. He was living in New Haven at the time, and a guy from Music Trades was traveling. Uh, he'd travel up into New England by, uh, by train and stop at these various places, interview people, and send the correspondence back for the magazine. He interviews Morris Mar 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 Steiner, and he, the, the interview went sort of this way. Uh, he asked him how the piano industry was, what the condition of things were. 
And uh, Steiner was uh, very down on the piano business right then, and he told him so. He, say, he invited him to his house, he stayed at his house and all that sort of thing, and he described the house and the service and this kind of thing, and uh, it was just a few, few blocks up from the train station. He, um, he didn't like the piano industry at the condition at that point because what, he was, what his concern was that anyone could build a piano. He said there were so many, the piano industry was so large at that time, especially in the Northeast, that anybody could buy, buy the components to make a piano and put their own name on it. And this, he felt, was going to be the downfall of the piano industry. Well, in 1901, he was doing just that himself. He started his own company making pianos and uh, buying the components, certainly the action. Uh, they designed their own scales, but they bought soundboards, they bought pin blocks, they bought actions and put them together as pianos. Um, but uh, back to my grandfather, he was... Uh, he started in 1897, as I said, when the building which we're in today was brand new. It had only been open three or four weeks. And um, he eventually bought the company in 1934. And uh, at that point, in the late 20s, uh, the piano industry had uh, suffered a, a sort of their own uh, depression. I think it was 1928, just before the crash that was uh, universal throughout the globe. They had lost a lot of money on... Um, on player pianos. Player pianos throughout the 20s had been the driving force of the industry. So that's Paul Murphy talking about M. Steinert and Sons uh, out there in Boston. And I'm just curious, Mike, what is their reputation out there, having grown up and, and, and born out there? It's kind of an icon in the city. Um, I remember me and you, Dan, we went uh, two years ago, I think it was, yeah. uh, to interview Paul for a second time. And um, a few others that work there and it's it's just kind of an icon you know it's on that corner in the city and they have Steinert Hall and yeah it's like you said been there forever and um, yeah just a staple to the city of Boston. Out of curiosity feel free to edit this out if it doesn't flow how Steinert Hall is obviously a venue Mm. how big what would you I guess even if you just said medium size I've never actually been in Oh, okay. It's medium size, but yeah. they're renovating it, aren't they? They are renovating it. I mean, it's very historic, and they've yeah. had just about every classical pianist that's ever been in the United States play there. So it's very, very historic. And it, okay. it's separate from the shop. If that is that that's correct? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just they're they've probably well, now the shop has moved. Them. Right. Right. So now it's totally separate. But even then, it was different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so it's just like one of those things that they got their name on the venue, probably because they helped get it established and bring a lot of the artists in that's and right stuff like that that sort of connection yeah okay and paul is a wonderful guy as you can tell in uh listening to part of his interview we're going to play a little bit more uh coming up but it's um what a wonderful man i mean he's so passionate this is his life this is running in his blood his uh two uh, his grandfather and his father served at uh as president of nam on the nam board and he himself served as well making it uh, a third generation uh, he served by the way in 1999 through 2001 and was there at the very beginning of the oral history program here at NAM, as well as the Museum of Making Music. So he has a, a, a soft spot there is indeed for Paul here in the building and for all of these different programs that he's helped us with over the years. And I think not only that, um, not having ever had the pleasure of meeting Paul, but getting to listen to his interviews in preparation for this podcast, his knowledge of his company history and the history of of the industry is in the microcosm that is piano retail is so vast that you feel passionate when he speaks to you about it 
he is seems like the end all be all for piano sales knowledge just because he's he has this air of confidence and he is knowledgeable that's very clear and he's passionate so i think that that makes him very engaging to talk to and Absolutely. and to listen to so we're glad to have him in the collection and his continued support of the program no so doubt about really it great. well said so what are we going to hear next from paul He's going to be talking about uh, how the Murphy family came into acquiring M. Steinert and Sons. They had no apparent successor. They had in, that's, uh, in, uh, in generations. There were uh, Steinerts that were working in the company, but Alex's sons, he, he, I don't know, he had some concern about them, I think. Uh, and he subsequently died in 1932. Um, so the company sort of founded for a while and then it was in receivership pretty much and in 1934 my grandfather bought the company along with one of the Steinerts and another partner so three of them bought the company uh, took it over they basically signed their names over for uh, for the debts that were owed by the company and uh, they consolidated a lot of things they, they at one point in the late 20s they had 42 stores and uh, and two factories running so uh, in and then 1934, they had closed everything by then. They were down to about three stores, no factories, and uh, just trying to make the payroll. And uh, they did it. They, uh, in 1935, uh, the, uh, the Hammond organ came along. And when the Hammond organ came into, into play, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> Uh, uh, Steiner was the second one to sign on for Hammond Organs. I just think that that's a really cool way to transition kind of a non-family business into a family business by selling it to the Murphys. And uh, a question that Dan asked in this interview that I really liked was the one where he asks Paul if they ever considered changing the name to Murphy Pianos or some variation of that because who doesn't want to do that when they start a family business? Right. But I like the fact that they kept the heritage. Absolutely. And they saw the value in the name and saw the need to preserve that legacy on its own. So I think that's really neat. You know, we run into that time and time again with interviews. And there's a few that come to mind where um, guys will start a store together and one of them gets out of the business or one of them passes away. And it doesn't occur to the other person to change the name because that's what it is. That's what they built together. And even if there was differences and one bought the other one out, there's still oftentimes that desire to be true to their history. And um, obviously, Paul and his entire family feel the same way. And I think that's very commendable. And I do believe part of it is also commerce, too. There's a real strong, as Mike says, they're an icon in that area for sure. So there's a there's a strong goodwill uh, business uh, association and worth to that name in that mm -hmm. area so it's a smart business deal but I think there is a passion that uh, contributes to that decision as well yeah so we're gonna hear from Paul next talking about what it was like having the second generation of Murphy's coming into the business going into the next generation my grand my uncle came into the business right away he was a musician he was a good organist uh, he started with the company in 1932, 33, uh, after he got out of college. Uh, he went to business school as well, um, and he was very strong in the industry. Uh, he had a lot to do with the Hammond organ part of it, as a matter of fact, because he was an organist. Um, he also brought on Allen organs very early with the Allen organ franchise in the early 50s. Um, my, uh, my father was not going to go into the business. He was going to uh, be a lawyer. He went to Harvard Law School, graduated from Harvard Law. He did practice law for a while, and my grandfather kept telling him how much he needed him in the business, so he finally came into Steinert. The war broke out, he left, 
went, went both of them, there were only two in that generation, my uncle and my father, they both went into uh, the service and they came out in 45 and continued with Steiner thereafter. And things were very good then because of the uh, accelerated economy after the war. It was, it was, uh, the business could certainly sustain uh, you know, several families, you know, which it couldn't before. You know, another quick thought I wanted to add, and we touched on this a little bit, but um, part of the uh, importance of Paul Murphy's role in the music industry has been his interest, in addition to running a very successful business, has been to help grow the industry. And as a result of that, he served on the NAM board for 10 years. He was the president. Um, and he contributed greatly to a lot of different programs. We mentioned a few earlier, but I just really wanted to say that uh, Paul's also been a mentor to a lot of younger people coming into the business. He's taken uh, countless hours out of his day to talk with those who have questions and have uh, established great relationships with many people who, over the years we've interviewed now, have pointed back to Paul saying, you know, he really helped me get my start or he helped uh, steer me in a certain direction. He gave me things to think about. So, you know, a, a very compelling part of our industry is that mentorship, that passion that people have that they want to share with other people. And if someone were to ask me who's an example of that, I really probably would first say Paul Murphy. That's, I, you know, I think that his, it just shows his compassion. He just seems like such a nice guy. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, I don't know. You'd want to buy a piano from this guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, Definitely. talk about a good salesman, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to round out our segment with Paul um, with a clip I just didn't feel like you couldn't include. With the rich history of pianos, especially in the States here, and how the the ebb and flow of popularity and everything like that, um, we're going to hear Paul talking about the history of piano sales after World War II. And I thought maybe Dan could provide, I'm hoping, a brief... I have my stopwatch yeah, right. in my I'll hand. I'll start the timer. Um, <laughs> history of piano sales. Ooh, that's that's a loaded question. There's no yeah. such thing as a brief history. No. Like if you had to give a two-minute rundown of <laughs> the history of piano sales. In the United States. In the United States. During the time of M. Steinert? Uh, not necessarily. I think just kind of from the start of popularity. Okay. So I guess that would be like player piano and then move right. on from there. Okay, a, a brief history oh, is gosh. in the United States, the piano has always been closely associated with popular music. So when Stephen Foster did I Dream of uh, Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair and things like that became very popular, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan in the 1880s, those songs really propelled a lot of people, particularly of means, to buy a piano to have in their home so they could play that music that was so popular. And so at the very beginning of the popular uh, music in the 1890s, for example, in the 80s, uh, were grand pianos, art case pianos, things that were of... Uh, almost um, a piece of art. That's why they Display, call them art case. Right? Yeah. So not a lot of people who bought them actually played, but maybe hoped that their children would learn one day. And meanwhile, it looks really nice in the parlor. And that became sort of a status symbol. And that was definitely a very important part of the development of piano sales in this country. I think that really led to the associations like the piano manufacturers who got together 
who, by the way, had a, a meeting in 1901 where a subset of folks got together who were the dealers who started NAM. So these were all piano dealers, all very interested in the industry and growing the industry and riding that wave of popularity that grand pianos were uh, a thing that was uh, very, very popular and successful at the time. And, and of course, as you mentioned, the uprights and the player pianos were also very successful thanks to a guy named Scott Joplin who created ragtime music and popularized it. So now people who maybe couldn't play that particular syncopation could have that music in their home. Remember, this is before radio or even record players. Uh, with these player pianos. So uh, there was a lot of jokes going around by 1901 when NAM came around that there were more sales of uh, bathtubs than pianos, but it was kind of gaining on them. Uh, that kind of joke. Uh, very popular. And uh, player pianos, of course, were um, successful for decades. So that really was another huge wave that uh, the piano dealers rode for many, many, many years. And as a result, a lot of manufacturers started to expand in making uprights as well as grand pianos. Chickering, Steinway even, um, several of them. Uh, Baldwin, of course, probably the most famous. And as a result of that, these became more accessible to people who weren't as uh, as rich, if that's the right word. <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I was say affluent. As yeah. affluent as the people who bought those grand pianos and those art case pianos. Now the common guy, the common family, you know, the middle class could start purchasing these uh, less expensive uh, pianos, but still great quality. And those manufacturers popped up all over the United States. There were dozens of them by the 1920s. So... That change um, in sales, I think, really ushered in what we now refer to as the, the, the piano movement of the, the 1930s and 40s because so many people were now giving piano lessons to their kids. This was important to them. They realized that maybe we didn't have one as a child, so we want to give it to our kids. And those importance really led to the continued sale, even during the Depression, even during um, the war, although there were definitely some hard times. A lot of manufacturers had to stop during some of those periods of time. But pianos were still popular and pianos were still being sold, even if they were makeshift. There was a time where they would cut them down and add a mirror on the top. Um, and those mirror pianos became very, very popular. So there was always a need for pianos. And that movement, I think, led to a lot of great things happening. The success of a lot of those stores and companies helped usher in things like the American uh, Music Conference, which is now today the NAM Foundation, and a lot of research that went into the importance of music, the correlation between music and education. A lot of those uh, programs were funded by these uh, passionate piano dealers and manufacturers, which would not have been popular, I mean, possible if the piano wasn't popular and a success for these businesses. So those were, I think, the key elements of the beginning of piano sales in this country. <sighs> Time. <laughs> was that two minutes? Uh, uh, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> no, I but tried. it was concise. It was about as concise as I had hoped you would get. So, um, and I promise we're going to get to Paul, but just to, to kind of 
um, summarize what Paul's going to be talking about as far as post-war sales in a very um, generic version. Would you say, would it be easy to synthesize that piano manufacturing and piano sales had a dip in the Great Depression in the 30s because of economic climate? Of course. Companies went out of business because they could not sustain sales because people couldn't buy them. Okay, so then we shift into World War II in the late 30s, early 40s, and while sales maybe start to improve a little bit because we're getting out of the Depression, a lot of the factories were being repurposed to build things for the war, war efforts. That's right. Do you happen to recall anything off the top of your head of plants or manufacturers that repurpose their their production line for the war efforts? Yeah, many of them. Steinway, Baldwin in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, made gliders for the war effort and had to cease and assist, you know, cease uh, the manufacturing of all of their pianos because of the weight of the soundboard. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And then World War II ends. Obviously, production can stop going to gliders and tanks and I don't know and shift back to pianos. (laughs) So we're going to hear Paul now, finally, talking about that return to normalcy, I guess, in piano manufacturing and sales. Right. And the point I was making earlier about this, and even though there was a dip because of economics and because of the limited supply during the war, there was still a major interest. And so used pianos and that that the idea of those... um, um, mirrored pianos were still very, very popular because people had always felt that there was a correlation between giving your kids something special, right. giving them that education, giving them those experiences that they didn't have. So when the supplies were back up to par mm-hmm. and these stores now had the goods back in uh, their retail stores, those piano sales started happening again in, in in great numbers after the war. Yeah, the desire and the demand was always there. It was just the ability to get these instruments to the people. That's right. Okay. So here is Paul talking about post-war piano sales, finally. Yay, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, immediately after the war, there was none available. So it was almost like it was during the war. But in 46, 47, you can see the thing spikes. You, you can, I've got those books, and you can look at them. You see annual reports on the Steiner Company. Things are going up, and it's not because they had more stores. We did open a suburban store in 1947, I think it was, and, uh, and that was following the model for Lion and Healy. Lion and Healy had a dozen stores suburban Chicago. Uh, my grandfather was always impressed by Lion and Healy and their management, uh, and, uh, and so he followed that lead, and he knew those guys very well as, as, as well. Um, it didn't work out that well. We closed the store four or five years later. We sold records as well and sheet music, but a lot of records, a lot of recordings. Uh, that picture in the in the uh, museum is actually a re- listening booth. That's taken from a photograph at Steiner. It's uh, around 1905, 1910, something like that, I think it was. Yeah. So these were ancillary equipment that were available for, for retail piano dealers to sell. And uh, so business is good from that perspective. Also, I think that the uh, pianos themselves, though, started to do a lot better. And uh, low end, the spinets that they were, were built in the 30s uh, that were selling slowly, they started to take off because there was more money available to, to, to sell these, uh, to buy the pianos. So spinets, smaller pianos, those things started to work better. So I, I, that's, that's my take on it. Also, a Hammond chord organ came out, you know, just right around 1950. 
and that was a hot seller, and that that generated a lot of interest in uh, in in uh, in business. It, it really it really did another. Uh, it did almost as well as the uh, Model A in 1935 had done. All right, so that was Paul Murphy, and that's the last we're going to hear from Paul Murphy. And again, just thank you so much to Paul for embracing this program and NAM and all the service you do to the industry. It is greatly appreciated. Um, who are we going to next, Mike? Looks like next we're going to hear from Glenn Trebitz of Hollywood Piano. They're the actual. They're the. Uh the youngest piano store that we're going to be talking about today. They've only been around 90 years. Um, <laughs> 90 years young? Oh, whippersnappers. 1928, they started in Hollywood, and uh, they have a wonderful history. I'd love to talk about it, but mm-hmm. I know Glenn does an excellent job talking about it, so maybe we should leave it up to him. I'm so glad you did that transition because I was going to have to interrupt you when you started giving us all their facts, and I hate doing that. <laughs> The founder of Hollywood Piano, a gentleman named Abe Tishkoff, he knew nothing about the music business. He was in construction. Someone wanted to build a building, which I think was going to be a music school, ran out of money, and said, I'm going back to Buffalo, and I've got all these pianos, and that's all I can pay you. So he took the pianos. Didn't know what to do with them, had them in his home, had them in his office. S- some neighbor said, hey, mister, can you, uh, can you loan me one of those pianos for $2 a month? And that's how it started. And he realized that you know, there, there's something there. And then the company went on to be at the right place at the right time. Okay, 1927 was the first uh, sound motion picture, the, the jazz singer. 1928, the company started. So 1928, sound was now important, as was music. So they were there at the right time, and and they were selling these studios pianos like crazy. And and some of their customers were like Cecil B. DeMille, Charlie Chaplin, who played the piano, was quite a composer as well. Um, All of those people were, were their customers. So they, they were just there. And then the studios started depending on them for, for the pianos that were on the sets. And they provided, you know, the Laurel and Hardy piano. They provided the Casablanca pianos. Um, they provided the pianos for, for Lucy and Ricky. Now there's some, there's some, you know, argument as to which pianos they provided. Now, the brothers told us they provided all the pianos. There's another guy who claimed he provided the one that was in the New York living room. We know for sure that they provided the one in the, uh, in the Connecticut home. They provided the, the uh, All in the Family piano. Those were the days. Uh, the piano that was in Frazier's living room during the first few seasons, and uh, that was a Steinway, and then later Steinway gave them a piano for the living room. Um, unfortunately, we sold that Frazier piano during that, that sale. It would have been nice to, to have had that. Or it was, maybe it was after that sale, it was about a year or two after that sale, we sold that Frazier piano. Mm-hmm. But they, they had, you know, just all these historical piano placements, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So we've expanded that, you know, we, we've become part of the Hollywood community in a, a much deeper sense than they ever were. They were, in the days of speed dial, they were on all the speed dials. 
now everybody has mobile phones and, and, and it's internet and so on. So we've kind of taken it to the next level. But if you see a television show or a movie, most of the time those pianos come from, from our company. That's really cool. And um, some of the recent ones, you know, have been, well, they're doing one right now with, with uh, Lady Gaga with two pianos that they're going to blow up. Um, we, we've done, uh, what, Ray, and we did uh, Dreamgirls, and um, ah, so many TV shows, uh, so many uh, burlesque, a lot of pianos for burlesque. Oh, La La Land. All the La La Land pianos, other than one that Steinway paid for placement on, but all the pianos and all the scenes, and even the ones that the composer Justin Hurwitz uh, recorded the score with came from us. He went to our storage facility in North Hollywood and personally went to every piano where we have a few hundred pianos and picked out the ones that had the sound he wanted. All right, so Dan interviewed Glenn at the 2017 Right. Nam, summer Nam show it took me a minute to count how many years back ago that <laughs> they all was. just mesh together they do don't kind they? of all mesh together and Glenn took time out of his busy show trip to sit down with us which is really nice and uh, talked a lot about his their rich history of the store there which is really cool I mean I guess the I quote unquote the piano store there in Hollywood for TV and film and prop and all that jazz. Yeah, I mean, it's just so cool to think about Laurel and Hardy, know. you know, oh, up to right. Frasier right. and everything in between, uh, utilizing their products uh, for the movies and televisions. Fantastic. That was probably one of the first times where I called home from that NAMM show and told my husband, like, oh, yeah, inter- we got to interview a guy who provided the piano for Frasier. And he actually was like, oh, my gosh, that's cool. <laughs> what you do is cool. So, that's I mean, right. usually it's just like, uh-huh, whatever. Um, and Glenn has such a passion for the history. And that's what's yeah. so wonderful to talk to him about it. Uh, when uh, they had their 90th anniversary, he was in the paper. And, and it was great to read that article because clearly the guy loves what he does. And that's sort of a... a uh, reoccurring theme in this podcast for sure, um, but I can assure you that this guy really enjoys uh, being a part of the piano business. Yeah, and we'll be excited when uh, Hollywood Piano is up uh, for their 100th anniversary in only, a few more years. Only 10 more years. Yeah. <laughs> I think they'll be okay. I think they'll make it. I, You know, 90 <laughs> years? Uh, yeah, I think they got 10 more in them. <laughs> So next we're going to hear from uh, Bob Fletcher, who's done a couple interviews for the program. And this is going to be his 2001 interview. And Bob is from Fletcher's Music Center. And we figured Dan could give us a little bio. So they started in 1905, uh, family owned since the beginning. And Bob is uh, very, very proud of the growth and development of the company during his tenure there. And again, like uh, Paul Murphy, spent a lot of his own time to uh, help support the industry. So he also served on the NAM board uh, for 10 years. He served as uh, the very first chairman. We switched the name from president to chairman during his watch. So he's the first chairman of NAM in um, 1991 through 1993. And again, a strong supporter of the industry, really helped uh, grow a lot of the educational 
programs as well as the wellness music makes you smarter at recreational music making and dozens of others that have supported the industry over the years and uh bob is going to be talking a lot about the history of fletcher's music center and some of the products they're sold but the part that i think um when we were having kind of our pre-production meeting for this episode that Dan really honed in on is their lesson program. Um, so do you want to speak to the weight that that carries? Well, these guys cornered the market on how to create and um, sustain not just individual lessons, but group lessons. And this really helped perpetuate the sales of organs, for example, many years after other companies gave up, other stores uh, discontinued home organs. Fletcher Music Center continued to thrive with these. And uh, even though some people said, well, it's their demographics in Florida that really drove a lot of that. Yes, I believe that's to be the case. However, if it wasn't for their strong educational component and the fact that these uh, customers would come back every week as a social, you know, bring a potluck and just want to be with each other, other students, and uh, compelled to do that with their teachers who encouraged them to continue to learn and develop as players, I think really helped single-handedly really helped continue the the sale of home organs within that company. So uh, they're very, very strong in that, and they're really a, a, an industry leader as far as I'm concerned. So it, it's a very compelling part of their, their business model. So from his 2001 interview, here is Bob Fletcher. We opened uh, 26 years ago in, uh, in Florida, and we were kind of a, a music department store like most everybody else was then and we found that uh, organs were something that uh, customers we were selling more of them they were more profitable uh, the the customers were extremely loyal they were looking uh, looking for a new hobby they were looking for a lot of them had moved from uh, the north to uh, to Florida and so they were looking to meet new friends and so we developed uh, our uh, teaching program which allowed them to get together as a as a social uh, 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 group, and uh, uh, so it, uh, about uh, 10 years into our existence in Florida, we made uh, an abrupt change, and uh, we uh, took all the guitars and uh, uh, pianos and keyboard instruments off the floor and had a, uh, an announcement that we had a great opportunity for uh, salespeople in the, in the company. We were taking away every product that they could sell except one, and that was home organs. And, uh, Is that right? So uh, <laughs> I, I would like to say I invented that. Uh, it, uh, like most things in business, uh, it, uh, it kind of happened uh, by accident. It, it did not happen with some great study that, that uh, we all, I can recite now about uh, how much sense it made uh, and made, makes today and made then about uh, the older population is the uh, fastest growing uh, population in the country, in fact, in the world. That they have more money than they've ever had. That the transfer of wealth uh, for the next generation is going to be fantastic. All of the statistics now that uh, uh, the uh, people that are niche marketing can cite uh, would, be, would have been a good reason to uh, do what we did 
but the truth of the matter is uh, we were just very lucky. <laughs> well, it seems to me that if you didn't have any of those resources, you are a gambler or uh, you were just a, a nice risk taker. What, I mean, what was the motivation behind it? I mean, you just knew it was going to be successful? Well, we had a, uh, we had a mentor in Southern California that had uh, done a similar thing to what we did. And so we had some guidelines. But uh, in looking at, uh, at uh, our operation, it was very obvious that the, uh, uh, everything else we did besides organs was only marginally uh, uh, profitable. But uh, the organs were very profitable. And so it, uh, as the overhead in the malls, we were in malls. We had probably 20-some malls at that time. Uh, the overhead kept going up, and we had to develop ways to uh, uh, to uh, become uh, more profitable, given the overhead that we really couldn't uh, couldn't control at all. And I'm sure you're well aware of the fact that after this was successful for you, there were an awful lot of other people who uh, scratched their head and said, "Hmm, if that works for him, maybe it'll work for us." Well, we had uh, a number of. Uh, of people that uh, uh, tried to do what we're uh, doing and uh, a number of them that are doing what we're doing. Uh, we have uh, a number, of, uh, most of the people that tried to do what we were doing uh, uh, tried to do it in the same area and became competitors and some of them uh, very successful. Uh, so again, it's like any retailing, uh, niche marketing of organs is, is not an easy, uh, uh, an easy thing to do. Uh, it uh, uh, there's not a there's no demand for organs. It's life like uh, cemetery lots or uh, life insurance. You uh, you really have to talk to people one on one and talk to them about a new a new hobby, and that's something that uh, uh, most music merchants uh, aren't willing and probably shouldn't be willing to do. Uh, we've seen a lot of attempts. Uh, at uh, structuring a program like Fletcher Music Centers has in, uh, in stores and it uh, most of the time it interferes with what the other uh, merchants do well in their stores. Mm. It also, um, I guess for my clarification, a niche market really means that you are spending your time and efforts to focus in on a particular demographic. Is that correct? That's correct. So previous to that, there really, the demographic for retailers was broader, basically. It wasn't necessarily excluding that demographic, but it wasn't necessarily honing in on that demographic. Is that fair It's It still is very wide for uh, most retailers. I think the big box retailers in, uh, in uh, retailing all retailing and uh, in the music industry today, uh, without exception, would like to have all uh, all demographics. By niche marketing can mean a lot of things. It can mean uh, uh, just the demographics, or it can can mean just the product, uh, and just the locations, size of location. In our case, it it uh, means two things. It means the demographics we uh, sell exclusively to people that have got time on their hands and are older and we sell only one product. We, we sell uh, a, an organ that uh, is in a furniture case and can be the focal point of uh, 
of people's living room and hopefully uh, occupy a, uh, a more and more, much more uh, time in their life than they thought it would when they first purchased. We have to do that with excellent customer service, with a teaching program that will just wow the people and want them to keep coming back to our stores. So it's not, uh, it's not a, uh, uh, as simple as it might appear uh, to somebody visiting our stores, it, it there's a lot of work that goes into the uh, program before uh, uh, the customer sees a product. Well, there's a couple of things I want to make sure we hit on that you were just talking about. Um, one is the educational aspect. You guys mm -hmm. have spent an awful lot of effort under that umbrella, and I'm wondering if you can tell us where the first idea of that came and how you've seen that progress. Yeah, we've, we've I'm, I'm sure, teach more lessons than uh, anyone in the uh, music business. Uh, uh, that's because we, we teach them in groups, we teach them every day, we teach them in the morning, we teach them at night. It, it is our only promotional activity. It, uh, everything we do at the store evolves around our education uh, program. Now, uh, that education program is much more than an education program. It's also a, a social program for the, uh, uh, for the customers. They, uh, they become very close to each other. They uh, uh, go out to parties uh, with each other. They go to not only our lessons, but they, they wind up going to other uh, cultural, cultural events in the community. And uh, it becomes a, uh, a real club, uh, club atmosphere. The, uh, this, again, was not uh, any great uh, great strategy on our part with the, uh, with the lessons. Uh, we originally uh, started out with uh, lifetime lessons 26 years ago. The reason that we did the lifetime lessons was uh, frankly not as a uh, customer substitute. In the old days when we sold a piano or sold an organ, we typically would as an industry give four lessons or some such thing. Well. Oftentimes the competitor down the street uh, as a strategy would give six lessons and so we'd have to give eight and then it was up to a fight over 16 or 32. So our strategy 26 years ago was to uh, take this out of the hands of the salesperson and, and, and not have him worried about uh, the competitive nature of the uh, marketplace and we said we'll, we'll give lessons as when somebody buys from us forever and uh, no matter how many lessons you want, we'll, we'll give them. And that's, that's really how that developed. And has there been a customer who has been there for 26 years taking lessons? Yes, there has. <laughs> there has. Yeah, sure has. Yep. Although, 26 years ago, uh, that was not the customer that we today would market. That, that customer that has been there for 20, 26 years, I'm, I, I'm sure we have some 90-year-olds uh, we do have some 90-year-olds in the class, and if, uh, if they would uh, have been there 26 years, they would have been uh, 64 years old and probably not retired, and we probably today wouldn't be interested in talking to them until they put some age on their bones and got a little older. All right, so that was Bob Fletcher of Fletcher's Music Centers, and uh, we got two more voices to hear from, and the next is Skip Danes. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. Skip Danes of Danes Music Company. 
Salt Lake City. They were uh, established in 1862, uh, just two years after Imsteinert in Boston. So these are the two oldest piano dealers in the United States currently running. And this uh, piano store, uh, Dane's Music, is still in running in the family. So an amazing story, several generations long, and very similar to Bob Fletcher and uh, Paul Murphy. As well as Glenn, as uh, we talked about earlier, um, Skip really has a strong passion for history. And as you'll hear in his uh, interview clip here, really cares a lot about where their roots are from, uh, where they came from, how they developed, and what's been magical uh, components of their family um, passion and love for piano sales that have been able to sustain that company all these years. And the clip that we're using today for Skip is also the clip that's posted on our website. So if you'd like to see some video along with this audio, you can head over to nam.org library and see the video portion. My great-grandfather, John Danes, came across the plains with the pioneers in 1862. And his son had a little concertina that he played, and John carried an organ on his back a lot of the way. And Joseph got to ride all 900 plus miles because the wagon masters wanted him to play for uh, each of them. And uh, John had to keep looking at his son while he was carrying the organ or pushing it uh, somewhere, put it on a wagon cart or whatever. So in 1862, they came to Salt Lake City and they uh, surrounded the, the wagons and and uh, city center, which is now uh, a part of our main part of our city, the city and county building. And Brigham Young happened to be there. He came out and saw this young boy playing on this little organ that uh, was the pump type. And he, he leaned down to him and said, young man, uh, you will be the tabernacle organist. Well, he was only like 13 years old. So they sent him back to uh, New York to study and finished building the the building, the tabernacle, and then he and Joseph Ridges brought parts of the organ in and installed it. At the age of 16, he was the tabernacle organist for 32 years. His father, all the time, started a music and jewelry store. He was the watchmaker for Brigham Young. But music was a big part of John's life. He was a good musician, and his son was better than he was and very gifted. But he kept uh, the music business going, and so we started our store on the corner of First South in a little log cabin building, Dane's Music and Jewelry, in 1862. Now we became Steinway dealers in 1873. So we, uh, as a fourth generation, hundred and almost 150-year-old company now, uh, we are the oldest stamp fi family Steinway dealer in the world. Hmm. So we've been around a long time, and there are a lot of things that uh, I have done with old Steinway people and new ones and a lot of things uh, throughout the history of Steinway that are very important to our company and to me personally and to our family. It's such an amazing story. Thank One you. of the things that is intriguing to me, and I've heard actually from um, our late friend Henry Steinway, was the relationship that he had with your family and um, understanding the market better, understanding the customer, understanding mm -hmm. how they could help produce and package 
a better instrument. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship? Certainly can. In fact, Theodore Steinway, as you know, was the engineer for the fa family, and John was the spokesperson and the Broadway uh, actor. Henry was the, the uh, president of the company for a long time, but Theodore used to come out and stay in our home, and uh, he liked to go out there because he, he liked to go uh, riding in jeeps out on the flatlands and the uh, Moab area where a lot of people know about now for uh, bike riding and jeeping and things like that. He liked to go down the Colorado River. So we got to know a lot about the early history of what Theodore did and of course uh, John was personal friends uh, of our family also. But Henry was the dean and the head of the operation and the most aristocratic and yet the kindest and nicest of all of the Steinways that I ever met. Uh, Henry and I go back a long, long ways and uh, I've, there are many stories about him, but the, probably the best thing one could say about what Henry learned from us and what we learned from him is that we learned from Henry uh, patience and perseverance and we learned uh, from his wisdom and we learned uh, about uh, taking time with each customer, being friends. I think before anything Henry made friends with everyone. Being a friend first in any kind of selling is really important. That's one of Henry's greatest traits. He, it didn't matter what kind of person you were, or he, he had an ability to make friends with everyone. And that he carried with him his whole life, and uh, I think that's why the factory people all love to work there for all the years. There are people who've been there 50 years. Well, that was because Henry was their friend, not just their boss. He cared about their families. He cared about everything. What we did for Steinway is, uh, of course, being out west, we're, we're in the sagebrush, and uh, when we deliver a piano, sometimes we're having to take it hundreds of miles. Um, we taught Steinway to build their pianos with endurance, and we taught them to to build uh, pianos that were sturdy. Um, we insisted on having uh, a connection with the artists, and many of which we have in today's modern world have promoted and who are very famous, like the Five Browns, who are extremely famous. There are now about nine Steinway artists that I helped become artists in, in the Utah area. Many of them are extremely famous. So with Henry and his wisdom and our tenacity, we kept uh, as carefully as possible saying, you know, this action isn't fast enough. Or the cabinet just doesn't look all that great, you know, you have to do a little more f final work and checking and quality control. All those things happen to uh, coincide together with their philosophy too. Because as we see Hamburg now uh, with uh, Thomas taking over, very first thing he said to dealers was that we are going to work on quality. We're going to make sure our piano in New York is nice and equals what people expect from our Hamburg pianos. So that we start seeing that. We're seeing that now as dealers. And that goes back to Henry's motto of, of always listening to the dealers, being friendly to us, um, trying to implement that carefully in his factory on a personal basis with his supervisors and his people.
So what I found really interesting about that clip from Skip is how he approached the history of the piano business, piano sales business and stuff like that from kind of a different perspective in terms of bringing pianos west. I mean, it's just a portion of history that I think a lot of people in general, um, the history of like westward expansion often gets glossed over in school and education. And there's not a ton of people who have passion about it outside of like that two-month window when they're heavily invested in the Oregon Trail. Um, (laughs) But Skip really brings that back to light, this facet of it, of the piano business that nobody talks about. And that's how did we get pianos to Salt Lake? (laughs) And I just, that was really captivating to me listening to that um, for the production. And then in the web clip that you guys just heard, I just, I had to bring it up because it's so cool. And Skip is another one of those guys that will take a phone call from anybody. Uh, He really believes in mentorship and passing on what he knows to other people. And again, a very compelling part of our industry is that so many of the folks who have been in the business many, many years are very willing to share what they know to help sustain going forward. And it's very commendable. And it's a, a point I often pick up on because it's a, a an amazing characteristic so here's skip's phone number if you want to know um so yeah again thanks to skip and everybody else in this podcast bob and glenn and and paul and uh especially to our last voice here because dan got to touch base with him over the last couple of weeks just to get kind of an update on what's going on with him and where his career is at and uh it was pretty exciting so we're gonna be hearing next from bob gray aka the music man right that's right so we've been talking about folks who have owned piano stores and we just thought for this podcast we ought to tip our hat for all those salesmen and women who have sold the store uh products over the years and who better to tell that part of it Uh, than the man who's probably sold more pianos than anybody else on the planet. And I don't believe I'm too far off in making that statement. Um, If he's not number one, he's got to be number two. Uh, Bob Gray is uh, an amazing guy and, uh, you know, one of those folks that you meet and just say, you know, I'm proud to be his friend. So I'm very honored to uh, include part of his interview uh, during our podcast today. His, I think it was 2006 that we interviewed him. And since that time, I've been reminded of the little segment um, in the magazine called Reader's Digest. When I was a kid, they had a segment of uh, their magazine that said, uh, write us if you could explain to us the most interesting person you know. And I think that if I ever were to write an article for Reader's Digest for that topic, it would definitely be Bob Gray. He started off as a cello player and was so uh, good, in fact, that he actually was playing in the Tulsa, Oklahoma Symphony, but decided that he was better at sales than playing, so he got into selling pianos. Uh, His first gig selling pianos in Oklahoma was in 1952. And in 1960, he moved over to St. Louis. And for some reason, he never uh, kept track of how many pianos he sold during those eight years in Oklahoma. But it's been estimated that since he's been in St. Louis, uh, one of his old bosses estimated that Bob has sold about 21,600 pianos and organs um, just since 1960. So it's hard to imagine there's too many people who have done more than that. He's an amazing guy, as you can imagine, to relate to so many people for so many decades. And 
87 years old, the day that we uh, talked to him, as Elizabeth said just the other day, he has just sold an organ. So uh, an amazing guy with an amazing passion. Uh, Kimball, by the way, the piano company, named him in 1985 uh, the world's top salesman of all of their products. Uh, he had won the, the U.S. Salesman of the Year for many years, but that was the, the one year that they said they attributed more sales than anybody else on the planet uh, to Bob. He's won trips, uh, just about every company that he's worked with, sales, making all those marks, and uh, loves the fact that uh, he's called the music man by many people. There's been many articles written about him. And one of my favorite facts about him is the fact that uh, he's told us that um, he makes about 50 phone calls every day off of his list of prospects, people who come in the store. He always gets a telephone number from everybody who comes in uh, who is interested in the piano or an organ, and he makes 50 phone calls, and there's only two ways to get off his list. You either buy a piano or you die. And um, that might attribute the fact that he's sold 21,000 plus pianos. So a, a sense of humor along with a real uh, work ethic has resulted in uh, one amazing career. So I'm very privileged uh, to have the opportunity to play for you a little segment of Bob's interview. I had uh, sold some pianos for John McMurray, uh, some digital pianos, uh, when Piano, Mer Piano America went out of business. Uh, for a time I was, um, before I got hooked up with another company, uh, I sold some of his digital pianos out of there and then, then uh, John and I were thinking about doing a store together and then uh, when it came about that Brooke Mays bought the company, uh, I immediately put in my uh, application to go to work for that company and uh, I guess they did some investigation on me from what I understand and then they called me and said that they would like to have me come to work for the company and how soon could I do it? And I said, well, how about in the next couple of weeks? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to go fishing first, right? <laughs> well, I don't fish, but I fish for prospects. <laughs> Which reminds me that I am—I work, uh, and, and you didn't ask me about this, but I, I'm working on about 1,600 to 2,000 piano prospects a day. I mean, I mean, I'm working on, on those prospects that I've. I uh, have gotten their names and phone numbers and addresses and so forth and got to know the people quite well. And so I actively uh, contact those people daily, not all 1,600 of them, of course, but, but a portion of them each, each day. And uh, I try to make 50 calls a day. And uh, when I'm not waiting on the customers, I'm on the phone calling my prospects. Mm. And I'm still doing this. <laughs> after all these years. It's the only way to do it, Dan. And I, and I, see, other I see other salesmen that don't even bother to get the person's name, their address, their phone number, or anything else. And I, I think, man, are they missing the boat? <laughs> so I don't think there's a better way to end this podcast on piano stores than hearing from the guy who probably has sold more pianos than anyone 
has ever sold in their career. I don't even think I've seen more than like a hundred <laughs> pianos, let alone twenty one thousand. I don't think I've done twenty one thousand of anything. No. And you know what? I really do believe that's a low number. <laughs> I, yeah, a conservative I estimate. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. I really do. That's crazy. Well, um, thank you guys for joining in with us on this podcast. If you get a call from Bob Gray, just be aware <laughs> he's going to sell you a piano. Um, we appreciate you guys always listening. If you like what you're hearing, please go online and write us a review and give us a rating. We would really appreciate that. And as always, if you have any recommendations on potential interviews or podcast ideas, feel free to drop us a note at library at nam.org. And we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.